All right, open your Bibles to 2 Timothy. And uh, we are continuing our series through Paul's second pastoral letter to his young disciple, Timothy. And in this chapter, in chapter 2, he actually uses uh, six analogies for the work of the Christian laborer. Uh, We looked at the first three a few weeks ago, the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. They describe the difficulty and the commitment that the worker of the Lord uh, will require. Now, we're going to look at the worker, the vessel, and the servant over the next two weeks. Um, And it shows how this, this labor is in the name of the Lord and in the house of the Lord. And what exactly that means to be a worker of the Lord. Especially what we're going to see over the next couple, uh, next couple sermons is as it is set against those who are working, and often they're working in the house of the Lord, but for a different aim. And they are unapproved workers. They seem like they are, uh, they are working with the people of God, but they turn out to be worldly workers who, who creep in and who try to undermine the house of the Lord. Uh, so before we get in... Um, we're going to look at what Jesus has to say about this. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 13. Jesus gives us a parable where he describes what the, the harvest looks like. Now, if you remember, I, um, I explained this last week in the picture of the sheep in the pasture. So while you turn there, Matthew chapter 13, verse 23. So last week, if you remember this, this imagery, when we were kind of talking through the doctrine of election, we think through Jesus in John 10 when he says, I have sheep. They know my voice. When they hear my voice, they will listen. They will, they, they will come to me and no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. And so use the, the picture of the ancient Near Eastern shepherd who would be out in the pastures in the fields and he would be there with other shepherds and there'd be multiple flocks. But the sheep knew their shepherd. When one shepherd would speak, all his sheep and only his sheep would listen and come. And so this is the world. There are many flocks. But when the voice of the true shepherd speaks, when his messengers speak, his sheep will listen. And the rest will keep on grazing as if nothing ever happened. They'll be unaffected by it. Jesus gives us a different uh, picture here in the parable of the weeds, or you may know it as the parable of the wheat and the tares. So I want to read the words of Jesus here, and this will help us as uh, we get into this 2 Timothy passage where we're going back and forth between the wicked and the righteous, the wicked and the righteous, and you're like, what's going on here? Um, Jesus told us that this would happen. This is uh, Matthew chapter 13, verse 20, uh, what did I say? Verse 23, 24. Uh, He put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done so. So the servants said to him, Then what do you want us to do? Or, or excuse me, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And so if you're hearing this for the first time, or you don't understand what Jesus is saying, you're in good company because the disciples didn't either. So later on in verse 36... Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Here's Jesus' answer. The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. So we have his seed, the good soil that puts forth good fruit, the elect. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And so this gives us a picture also of the wide way and the narrow way. There are a lot more sons of the evil one than there are sons of the kingdom. But Jesus says, let them both grow up until the day of the harvest. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sold them is the devil. 
The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all uh, causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. At that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Keep this parable and this image in mind as we walk through our text in 2 Timothy. Um, so, the structure. Uh, again, this is going to be two parts. You'll see that in your, in your uh, bulletins. The Lord's Worker, part one and two. Um, I'm going to be gone for a couple weeks, so we'll do that several weeks out. But here's the, the structure of our text in 2 Timothy. There are two parallel sections. So, this morning we're going to look at 14 through 19. And then the other parallel section is 22 through 26, contrasting the unapproved workers, the workers of iniquity, um, with the workers in the household of the Lord. The wheat versus the weeds. Uh, they're going to go back and forth. So we're going to look at the, the situation, kind of the explanation of, of what's going on, and then the uh, solution, the antidote later on. Right in the middle is this what we call a Janus passage. It looks back and it looks forward. It's an illustration that describes both of those. So it describes, uh, this is where we're going to end this week, and we will pick up next time. And so it describes this house. And in this house, there are worthy vessels and there are unworthy vessels. There are godly, honorable vessels and ungodly, dishonorable vessels. Um, And they both exist until the harvest. And so those who are dishonorable vessels try to lead people away, but the workers, the good workers, they labor and do good works in the house of their master, and those works will be preserved. So um, I'm excited to get into this this morning. It's a very visual text. There's a lot of imagery to unpack. So without further ado, let's read our passage, uh, and then we'll walk through it together. So I'm going to be reading verses 14 through 21. Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearer. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you bless our time together this morning as we bless your name, the name that is above every name, the name that is high and lifted up, the name that is placed on your people, the name that reminds us of our redemption and calls us to depart from iniquity. We praise you that we bear the name of your son. Just pray that your people would be encouraged this morning, that we would not be frustrated and and distracted by the workers of the world or the cares of the world. Pray for your church this morning, Lord, that you will bring the false teachers to the surface, that your shepherds would have wisdom to cast them out, that we would have boldness to confront false doctrine that upsets the faith of your people. Lord, purify your church. Purify them according to your word, through the blood of your son, through the power of your spirit. May we be a fitting bride for our bridegroom. May Christ be exalted in what we say and what we do. 
May our unity and our peace and our truth be a witness to the world around us, that we are citizens of an unshakable kingdom that will never end, that will never fade, that will never be overturned, but the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of the workers of iniquity, the kingdom of the goats and the tares and the weeds will be overturned and will be destroyed. Lord, we labor here in your field until the day of the harvest, and we look forward to that day that you would gather in all of your bride, those seeds sown on good soil, that we would praise your glory with the angels forever in your presence. But until that day, let us be faithful workers. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So when our passage begins with a word like remind, remind them of these things, we have to remember what these things are. So in the context of chapter 2, Paul is telling Timothy that you are a worker in the church, and part of one of your, your jobs is to raise up other workers. We have to go back to verse 2. And he, when Paul tells, tells Timothy, or beginning in verse 1, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, so he's encouraging Timothy. But Timothy, this is not just for you. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is a four-generation ministry that Paul has in mind here, from Christ to Paul to Timothy to the next generation, five, and those that they will teach. And the lesson of this chapter has not changed. So when Paul says, remind them, charge them, he's still speaking of the faithful men. So Paul takes a moment out of encouraging the workers in the church to remind them of what they are working for and why they are working and how they can work in the first place. He takes a step out of pastoral instruction in verse 8 to say, remember Jesus Christ. Don't get caught up in the work and the running and the farming and all these metaphors if you forget Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. Don't forget him. Last week we looked at the person, the power, and the promises of the gospel. The person is Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, the heir to the throne of, of the nation of Judah, the eternal throne that would never pass away, who died as the spotless lamb for forgiveness of sins, who rose again unto life everlasting so that all who believe in him will have everlasting life. Timothy, don't forget this. Remind these young men of this. Never lose sight of the gospel. Never forget the gospel. The person of the gospel, the, the power of the gospel. He reminded him that even if I'm bound in prison, the word of God is not bound. Don't let my situation or your situation make you afraid. Because Paul is laboring for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain their, their salvation. The power of God is that the people of God will be saved. And the word of God will accomplish its purpose. This gospel has a person. It is Jesus Christ. This gospel has a power, and that power is effectual. It will accomplish what God sets it out to do. And this gospel has promises. Verses 11 through, through, through 13. This ancient hymn. This, the, the promise that if we die to him, we turn from our sins, we will also take on his righteousness because he has taken our sins to the grave and he has res resurrected us to new life. And if we endure to the end, those who continue the end, who prove that they are truly in him, they will reign with him. But those who deny him, he will also deny. There are plenty in Ephesus and there are plenty in every day who may start out claiming the name of Christ but turn out to be blasphemers and heretics. And then this closes with the final promise that if we are faithless, he remains faithful. What a great encouragement to the church that it is not our faithfulness that determines our ministry. Praise God for that. It is not us saying all the right things and doing all the right things. We are to work, and we're going to talk about work this morning, but we work because of Christ's faithfulness, out of Christ's faithfulness, and in Christ's faithfulness. And we trust him for the outcome of our labors. 
So when he says remind them, this is what he wants them to remember. And when he says charge them, there's an additional charge. This word for charge we, we've looked at before. It is an, it is an authoritative um, urging. This is a divine warning for their own good. Charge them before God. This is important. In your, in your ministry, do not get caught up in the quarrel about words. This is literally useless word battles. These are so easy to get drawn into, and we're going to look at a couple people who have been drawn into it and have started to draw others away. Don't get drawn into that. We don't know exactly what those useless word battles were. We don't exactly know what the conversations were. But we do know that whatever it was, it wasn't essential. So if it wasn't essential, it wasn't good. How do we know that it wasn't good? Because it ruins the hearers. We know this is all too common in the church. We know that some people love to major on the minors. If you've been in the church for any number of of years, you have seen this. And let's be honest, every one of us has been guilty of this at some point. Whatever it is, it's the new idea we come up with, the new doctrine we get excited about, the new scandal in the church, the new thing that we're obsessed with, the new conspiracy. And this becomes the end-all, be-all. All of a sudden, it's, it's a big deal to me, so it must be a big deal to everyone I speak to. I've seen this so many times, and this often happens with young, zealous Bible college students who get so excited about the new doctrine that must be the ultimate doctrine, and then everyone else is going to hell. They may not say that, but the urgency with which they speak conveys that. How many young men have you met who will easily argue and get into word battles with one another, but will not encourage one another? or pray with one another, or lift each other up in love. As leaders, as pastors, as elders, Timothy, don't get involved in this stuff. Tell your other men, don't get involved in this stuff. Because it ruins the hearer. Because what these young men don't understand is I've been on the other side of those, those conversations where people come to me and their, their faith is shaken because they don't check all the right theological boxes. They wonder if they're really even a Christian. They wonder if, if Christ could truly be, 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 be pleased with them. Somehow they're incomplete if they don't understand something. That is foolish. Because in our zeal to defend theology, we end up adding to the gospel. Our salvation is in Christ and the work of Christ. That's why he said remember Christ. Because it is so easy to add our ecclesiology, our eschatology, our Soteriology, that's true. Um, but these other things are, are, are secondary. And we don't want to get caught up in those. We want to keep the main thing the main thing. And we want, to, we want to beware of those who love to debate and distract. So he's telling Timothy, don't be like that. Verse 15, this is singular now, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Timothy, you be an example. Make every effort to act like one who is approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. Now, we need to talk about this for a moment. Make every effort to act like one who's approved. We do not work to be approved. We work out of our approval because God is approved of his, of his workers. I want to look at a couple passages, and then I want to talk about this word, approved. Um, Romans 12.1. I love the book of Romans for so many reasons. But I love the, the structure and the brilliance of the book of Romans. Chapter 12, verse 1, is a transition in the book of Romans. Paul has 11 chapters on explaining what the gospel is. 11 chapters of indicatives. We know there's a transition because it ends with amen at the end of chapter 11. In chapter 12, he says, I appeal to you therefore. What do you think the therefore refers to? The first 11 chapters, justification through faith in Christ, who is your new head, who you will never be separated from or never condemned. And that's because God chose you because he loves you. Therefore, brothers, because of that, because you are approved, 
through the finished work of Jesus Christ. God's mercy toward his people. Now, because of your approval, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is where pastors lead. We remember the gospel. We remember who we are. We remember that because we're approved, because, um, because God has shown his mercy on us through Christ, then we present our bodies as living sacrifices. Our work, our worship comes out of that. Second Peter chapter 1 has something similar. 2 Peter chapter 1 is a great practical encouragement about what it means to be called in the name of the Lord. And even though you are called, the Lord has begun this, this work in you, you work this out. And he concludes the whole thing with all of these in, encouragements toward faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control. Verse 10, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. It's already solidified. Work it out. Make it known. Be evident to all. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. It's the same encouragement that Paul is giving to Timothy. Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. This is not someone who, who is presenting himself so that he'll be approved. He is presenting himself because he's approved. This is the first of our uh, very visual words here. This word in the Greek, is only used one time in the New Testament. But this word, outside of the New Testament, is applied to metallurgy. So it's applied to metals. It's applied to gold, silver, valuable metals that have passed the test. This refers to a metal that has gone through a process of testing and has been verified, approved, and comes out on the other side as genuine and is stamped. This is gold. This is silver. This is the picture of the Christian minister. God has refined you. God has set you apart. God has put his stamp of approval on you. This is what you work out of. When we think about this approval process, if you've ever tried to sell gold, you go into one of those you know, pawn shops, we buy gold, what's the first thing they do? We need to test it. There is a series of, of, of tests. There are many tests. You can put acid on it. You could um, rub it against your, your skin. You could scratch it on a stone. You could pour vinegar on it. There's all these different ways. But true gold will stand up to whatever test you put it under. This is why we don't lay on hands too quickly. Because the approved worker, he will show that when he is tested, when he has been trained, he is, he is shown to be the real deal. Timothy, I put my hands on you. I know you're the real deal. I know you're approved by God. Pick men like that and then work out of that. This also means that some workers are not approved. This also means that some, if you put them to test, if you press them and you challenge them, they will fail. Like gold, if you rub them the wrong way, they're going to leave a green mark on your skin. And so you watch out for those, those falsehoods, those counterfeits. So Timothy, you set an example as an approved worker of God. And so he who works from the Lord, works unto the Lord, you have no reason to be ashamed. This is what he's saying to him. A worker who has no reason to be ashamed because the Lord approves of you, because the Lord has called you. You work from him, in him, and to him. And what is the primary task of this worker of the Lord? Rightly handling the word of truth. Here's our next visible word. I, I, I love this. Um, this is one Greek word combining two, two uh, Greek cognates, which mean to cut and write or or straight. So the prefix we're, we're familiar with, orthodoxy, right doctrine, orthodontrics, uh, straight or right teeth. This is a, a right cutting. And so um, it's interesting, it's only used one time in the New Testament, but it is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And you might find this familiar, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Or 
he will rightly handle your paths. Same word here. Same idea. The same way when we trust the Lord, we don't lean on our own understanding. He will make our path straight. That is the job of the pastor, to make the, the, the paths straight for his congregation. This creates a, a, a word picture. When you think of cutting and straight, this creates a word picture of what is crooked and what is confusing. Think about being in, in, in a jungle or being lost in the woods. You need a guide. You need someone who's going to cut through all of the vines and all of the underbrush and, and, and clear the way so that you can know where you're going. Avoiding the unnecessary detours. And I, as I was thinking about this, this reminds me of the conversations I have all the time. Anyone ever began reading the Bible and feel overwhelmed? You know, anyone open the Bible? I have this conversation all the time. I don't know where to start. And so people are like, oh, I'm going to start in Revelation. Not the best idea. <laughs> or they say, I'm going to start at the beginning. It's a good idea. And then they get to Leviticus and they're like, what, what is going on here? It's like being dropped off in the midst of a vast rainforest and no one has given you a map. No one has given you a compass or a machete. And too many churches offer no help. They're just trying to entertain. Or they're so shallow they never get out of the parking lot of the journey. But too many people don't ask for help. Too many people are lost and overwhelmed and they, and they quickly get discouraged in reading the scriptures. I have this conversation also. I tried to read the Bible on my own so many times and I couldn't understand it, so I gave up. This is why the Lord uses faithful ministers in the local church because this approved worker, he's the guide with the machete. He's the guide who helps you cut a straight path, who helps you follow and, and navigate the world around you. And um, this is why we preach and teach the way that we do. Jesse jokes about um, us going deep here. Um, we go deep because we don't want you to get lost. We want you to have the tools for yourself. We want you to know how to cut through the vines too. This is not just for me. The people of God have the word of God and the, the spirit of God illuminates it for us. But we need teachers. We need those to help us on the way. And hopefully one day you too will be teachers. Men, you need to be teachers in your homes, leading your wives and your children. Ladies, God has given you a great responsibility in caring for children. And there are so many young women who would desperately love an older woman to love her and to counsel her and just show her where to avoid pitfalls and to open the word with her and show her wisdom. We need this. So that's a full plug for uh, ladies next week as we get together. Yeah. So this uh, worker, so when he's cutting this uh, straight path, he's not cutting it with, with, with his own cleverness. He's not cutting it with anything he brings to the table. Paul says here, rightly handling. There's a sword. You are rightly handling the, 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 the sword of the Spirit. The word of truth. This is the machete that cuts through all of the crowding vines and the underbrush where all the serpents lie. This is the good deposit again. Do you remember the first time you heard someone rightly handle the word of truth? Do you remember the, the, the first time you heard helpful, solid biblical exposition where someone walked you through a passage and they told you, here's, what was, here's what's going on in the book, Here's who the author is. Here's what's going on in the audience. Here's how this verse relates to this verse. Here's how it relates to the whole counsel of God. Do you, do you remember that sense of having a confusing passage explained? How it's like a breath of fresh air, like I can breathe. And how it creates this excitement in you for the word. I do. I, re I remember just hearing that exposition. And like, wow, I want to know the Bible like that. I want to study the Bible like that. But me, like most of us, though, I'll, I'll never do that. I had no one to tell me. I had no one to show me. I just thought the guy up there did it. But praise God for his Holy Spirit. And praise God for faithful men who train faithful men who train faithful men who train faithful men who create faithful churches. Most likely, 
you're here in this church because you see the value of this, because you see the emphasis we place on the word of God. And we don't place ourselves above it. We humbly submit ourselves to it, and we unapologetically proclaim and explain what the Lord has given us. And this is good, hard work, and it needs good teachers. This is what Paul is saying. Here's the answer to the irreverent babble. Here's the answer to these word fighting. But there are many teachers who teach their own doctrine for their own purposes. And in a world of error, we need the word of truth. Because error is not new. Look at the next verse. Verse 16. But, here's a contrast. Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. But here's the, uh, cont- the, the contrast. The word of truth from the approved workers and the unholy nonsense of the unapproved workers. So what do we do? And, and I think what um, modern pragmatism and capitulation does is, oh, let's allow them a seat at the table. Let's, uh, let's uh, hear them out. What do we do? Do we hear them out? Do we give them access to the sheep? Do we give them access to the congregation? Avoid them. Just like he told us in 1 Timothy, flee all unrighteousness. Don't even entertain false teachers. Don't even entertain these people who are irreverent, who just want to draw um, attention to themselves. Because if they want to draw attention to themselves, they will draw people to themselves. And what does Paul say? For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Any exposure will. It is a guarantee. So avoid them. Repent, turn from them, turn them away from your flock, show them the door. This is a great lesson for the Lord's workers. Avoid quarreling babblers, avoid irreverent teachers. Online, how many times have you seen this? The YouTube algorithm is so dangerous for this. Oh, you like preaching in churches? Here's 10 other churches. Some are good, some are not. You go from one to the next, to the next, to the next, and you're like, how did I get here, but now I believe some crazy stuff. This has happened in our body. This has happened to people we all know. And so we must have discernment. We must flee those things. Whether it's people in work or in class, but especially in the church. The people who love to complain, the people who love to argue, who love to nitpick, They always find something wrong because they're not content. But that attitude, it feeds others and it draws others in because we love to complain. We're complainers. We love to nitpick. Oh, you found something wrong? I found something wrong and I'm going to one-up you and find something else wrong. And that leads to more and more ungodliness because then the people of God are not content. So Paul, is there some way you can explain this? Is there some illustration that helps us understand this? Well, I'm glad you asked. You avoid them. Verse 17, if you don't, their talk will spread like gangrene. This is fascinating. I didn't know how gangrene worked, so I looked it up. Um, here's, what, here's what gangrene is. Gangrene happens when the blood flow is, is cut off to areas of the body either extremities or, or vital organs. I don't know if you know this, but blood brings life to your body. If you cut off the blood, that thing ceases to live. And so gangrene left untreated, with the, your, your, your blood working to maintain your body's functionality, bacteria builds up. And it begins to spread poison to the entire area and the entire body. And if you don't get blood flowing again, it kills you from the inside. This is what Paul is saying will happen in the church. This is, a, this is why it's of vital importance that you address and correct false doctrine. Because if it stops the flow of blood, the word of truth that points us to the blood of Christ, that brings life to us, if it stops the flow of blood, if, it star- if we're starved of life-giving instruction, it creates failure of the internal organs. Part of your body is going to begin to die if the word of God is cut off from it. And that gangrene is, will, will, will spread until it kills all of you. This is the perfect parallel 
to quarrels in the church and irreverent false teaching, if you don't put a stop to them, if you don't resume healthy bodily function, if you don't bring back blood to that area of the body, when it needs to live, it will die. And it will kill you from the inside out. So that's what Paul is seeing happen in Ephesus. That's why these names, if you don't remember, one of them we saw before in 1 Timothy. So these ungodly teachers whose teaching is spread like gangrene, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. So imagine this. For all of eternity, you are known as, as, as heretics, gangrenous heretics, and rightfully so. You are infamous in all the wrong ways. But look at what was going on in Ephesus just a few years earlier. Let's go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 6 of chapter 1. Certain persons, by swerving from these, we'll see that same word again in a moment, have wandered away into vain discussion. Sound familiar? Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now let's jump into verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. All right, Timothy, we put you in this office. The elders stood around you. They put their hands on you. They prophesied over you. Wage the good warfare. What warfare is Timothy facing in Ephesus? You must wage a good warfare. You must hold faith in a good conscience. Why? Because some reject this. Some reject the good faith. Some are not walking according to a good conscience. Some have made a shipwreck of their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan. What does that sound like? Sounds like excommunication. He has cast them out of the church. Why? Because they are blasphemers, and hopefully they will learn not to blaspheme. If they're of the Lord, you turn them over to Satan, they see how miserable they are in their, their sin and how they need the fellowship of the saints and how they need the prayers and the preaching of the word and they desire to come back and repent. But apparently, Hymenaeus has not repented. Not only that, he's found a new disciple. He's drawn someone else in him. He's in Ephesus and he's beginning to upset some in the church. That is why Paul calls them out by name. Protect your flock. Because there are men in your own town who you know by name, who used to sit next to you in the local gathering, who, are swer who have swerved from the truth. This word, swerve, here's another visual picture. This is an archery word. This is for someone who misses the mark. This is for someone who looks at the target, aims, and hits the tree over to the, left, to the right. This is like, false teachers are like the first day of archery class. You ever been in an archery class on the first day where people get their, their, their bows and their arrows and they go everywhere but where they're supposed to go? Don't, don't stand anywhere near the target because you, you can't assume that they're going to be accurate. Here's the problem with, with false teachers. The target's clear, but they don't care if they're accurate or not. They're going to keep shooting at something until it sticks, until someone responds and they're going to latch on and they're going to take them with them. So how have they missed? How have they swerved from the truth? Saying that the resurrection has already happened. Okay. Now, um, admittedly, we don't know what this means. Um, we don't know exactly. Uh, I think there's a good consensus of what we think this means. So what we think was going on, um, there's a lot of dualism that went on in, in, in those days where, you know, the body's evil and the uh, spirit, is, spirit is good and there's, this, um, there's this, this kind of two opposing forces that we, we walk among. So um, what we think they were teaching is that now that we're converted... Now that there is, is new life in Christ, 
there is a resurrection from the spiritual dead, that means we're also bodily resurrected. That means that the resurrection that we look forward to, the resurrection that is, that is promised us of the living and the dead, has already happened. So you would see how this could be confusing. You mean this is my glorified body? This thing. This is, is, is what I got to be in for eternity? Yeah, that's right. But then there's the theological side. If we've been completely sanctified, if we're fully glorified now, how do we start to think about ourselves? It leads to arrogance, leads to lawlessness. Well, I've already been resurrected. Everything that needs to happen to me has happened to me. I'm already perfect. And so I don't look forward to an age to come because I'm in it. This is as good as it's going to get. But it's even worse. What does that say about Christ? I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Here is the problem. When you begin with useless doctrines where many people are like, well, that's not important. Now, should we fight over doctrines that lead to heresy? Absolutely. This is one that begins with a reverent babble and then leads to heresy because the same problem is going on in Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this is the resurrection chapter, picking up in verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Because Paul just told us, if we die with him, we'll also raise with him. And so if, Christ, if, if there's no resurrection for us, then Christ's resurrection is meaningless. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. What you believe about the resurrection is vitally essential. You do not add to or take away from Jesus' perfect substitutionary atonement and the spiritual resurrection and the promised physical resurrection that accompany it. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Someone has to be wrong, is what Paul's saying here in verse 15, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are are of all people to be pitied. Think about that. That is why Paul is saying they are upsetting the faith of some. If you want to attack the gospel, you attack the person or the work of Christ. And if you put doubt in the resurrection of Christ, even if you put doubt in that, that when Christ promised that we will be resurrected one day, that we will be glorified one day, you begin to pull a thread and undermine all of the gospel itself. That is why Paul is so fiercely speaking out against these men. This is why Hymenaeus was excommunicated, and he's still being mentioned now. So, before we get into verse 19, I want you to think about this. How can we tell if someone is working for the Lord or against the Lord? Um, Jesus also helps us here too. Um, Matthew chapter 7. This shouldn't, when these false teachers come up, this should not surprise us. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. They seem like they're workers. They seem like they're, they're wheat but inwardly they're weeds, they're ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. And so again, this is one who's approved will show himself to be faithful over time. Tree doesn't always bear fruit in the first year. You gotta wait. You gotta see what kind of tree it actually becomes or shows itself to be, excuse me. You'll recognize them by their fruits. 
are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. So here's, another, here's a key right here. How do you know someone's working for the Lord? Do they build up the saints? Do they encourage the saints in Christ or do they upset people's faith? If, if someone in your church, in our church, and you as, as members, I want you to be vigilant in this. If someone, when they talk to people, there's this series of every time they talk to this person, they walk away unsettled. They walk away unsure or less sure of, of the gospel. They walk away with more questions than they have answers. That is a false teacher or someone who is immature who should not be teaching and needs to be corrected. You will see what kind of fruit is born in other people. But health, excuse me, verse 17. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Someone comes to you with a new teaching, you weigh it against scripture, you also watch their life. Does this person walk as someone who's following Christ should walk? Often, false teachers, they show themselves pretty quickly because they love attention. They love to talk. They love to be recognized. They love to be heard. They love to come up with something new and something exciting to draw people in. And we love new, shiny things. Just look at a kid on Christmas morning. Just look at every fish before he gets caught. The last thing he sees is a shiny thing flickering in his eye. And you've got people creeping into churches with little shiny things, and you've got weak people who lack discernment, who get unsettled in their faith. Verse 18, a healthy, truth can, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear f- fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Here's the encouragement we have. Those false teachers, they will be burned. They will be destroyed. And James tells us, for those who teach, you claim to be an expert, you'll be judged with greater strictness if you lead others astray. The Lord will have his vengeance, but we are to have our discernment. This is why when we went through 1 Timothy, the, the, the qualifications for an elder are very important. And not laying on hands too early, and recognizing those who lead and teach well. This is important for the church. So the Lord's worker as this this guide, he must first light the light of God's word as a lamp unto his feet. He must first know the path. He must first know God's faithfulness. He must first know how to get people through the jungle, clearing the path for others. That's what good teachers do. We're not perfect. The best teachers learn from, you know, what's the old, the old saying? That, you know, um, good people learn from their own mistakes and, you know, but smarter people, whatever it is, learn from others' mistakes. We learn from mistakes we, we, we make. And we, and, we, and we clear the path. This is the narrow way. Here's, here's a good litmus test. If your unsaved neighbor feels comfortable and the message that they're hearing, it's probably not the gospel. The gospel is not to make unsaved people feel comfortable. That is the wide way, the wide way of, of pragmatism that says we're going to do whatever we can to get people in the door and to make, them, make them, them feel good, even if we undermine the glory of God and the word of God. We can, we can compromise and, and, and we can capitulate because if we just love them enough, i.e., if we do everything they do and say, Jesus is just like you, then they're going to choose Jesus. Why would they? There's also attractionalism. The, the big shows and the, 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 the lights and throwing tons of money at things. This is not the narrow way. If your church looks like a Netflix special, it probably is not the narrow way. If it appeals to people's sensitivities and it appeals to the flesh, you're just trying to track them with the means of the world. You know, in Pilgrim's Progress, every time someone approaches Christian, 
every time someone comes up and says, hey, I know where you're going, I got a shortcut. I got something easy. Every time someone offers you a shortcut or something easy, what happens to Pilgrim? He's got to pull himself out of mud. He's got to flee dragons. He's got to get himself out of a cage. It is never good when someone says, I've got a shortcut. When someone's got a get-rich-quick scheme version of Christianity, it is false. It is gold-plated rock. And we all know this, because if we've ever veered off the path in our Christian faith, or we've ever veered off the path in the woods, you ever got lost in the woods? You get turned around, every tree looks the same. The narrow path is cut, it is, it is guided, and, and, and we stay on it, and we guard each other on it. This is what the worker of God does. It is our job to clear the way, to remove what will make people stumble. That's why we need godly men in the church to lead families and to lead in the church, and godly women to lead children and lead other women so that all of the body of Christ is built up and protected and stays on the path. But I think there's a temptation with so many paths and so many false teachers, so much to, short, to sort out. Sometimes we can be like, how do I know the difference? Like, like how, do I know what, how do I know if what work I'm doing will actually amount to anything? Like, how, how do I not lose hope when there's so many false teachers, and I've had this conversation with this person so many times, and, and they, they don't listen. We never forget that the word of God is living and active. It is the spirit who does the work. We may wield the sword, but we are not the sword. And so we trust that the word of God will accomplish its, its purpose. We trust that when the word of God is taught and applied properly, that the spirit will remove hazards. The spirit will, will, will shine light. We may plant, we may water, but we trust God for the increase. We can trust the Lord. We do not lose heart because he is not moved, even if the person in front of us seems like the immovable object. We serve the sovereign Lord who cannot be moved. That is why we need verse 19. Because if you stop in verse 18, some people are being upset. There are, there are false teachers. Where is our hope, Paul? But God's firm foundation stands. There is a foundation that, is, that always stands, no matter what the world or false teachers do. I love Hebrews 12, 28. We should be reminded of this often. Where is our citizenship? Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. This firm ground that is strong and movable, that is anchored. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. We don't need to fear the world. We need to fear God and rest in our citizenship in his kingdom because Christ is building his church. It is firm. The gates of hell cannot come against it. It is unlike the, the cancer and the gangrene. Here's another thing. How do we see, notice, a, a false teaching? False teaching is always moving. It is always morphing. It is always moving the goalposts. Okay, you found me out on this. Well, no, I really believe what, what, what you believe. How many of the, the cults of our culture keep changing their doctrine? You can tell a true church when they stand in the historic faith and they don't move when they get challenged. That is what cancer does. It kills one thing. When it gets found out, it adopts and it kills something else. It swerves. It is unreliable. And so I must ask you this morning, what are you standing on? What do you believe? Is it firm? Is it immovable? Or are you trusting in that which swerves and eats everything it touches and you can't ever grasp it because it's always moving, always changing? I know so many Christians who struggle because they listen to this teacher and this teacher and this thing and this thing and they're just confused. Here's the other encouragement. The Lord, his firm foundation stands, and there is a seal for the people of God. This word for seal here, it's another picture. It is an impression made by a signet ring. When a king 
Someone with authority would send a message. He would send a letter. He would put wax on it, and he would press his ring onto the wax. And there was a seal that was unique to this king that said, this message is approved by the king. This seal, this royal, this royal approval is the seal of our king. It is an internal seal of the Holy Spirit. And what is that seal? The Lord knows all who are his. This goes back to the election we were talking about last week. He has put his seal on his people. Thank you, Lord. Do you think if the Lord places his seal on someone that you can remove it or someone else can remove it? This is a sovereign, eternal security for the people of God. This is to take courage. And if you don't believe me, you should, because I'm just reading what Scripture says. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Don't take my word for it. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. This is so the Christian takes courage. This is so the minister of the gospel takes courage. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. That is the seal of the new covenant. The Holy Spirit. I could get off on a tangent here, but I won't. That is the seal of the new covenant. The only seal mentioned in the New Testament is the seal of the Holy Spirit that unites us to Christ forever. Paul doesn't just use it once, he uses it again in Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians chapter one, verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, here it is, here's the word of truth that Paul is telling Timothy to, to, to wield, to handle, right, to handle rightly, because when you hear it, when you hear the gospel of your salvation, when you're a sheep and your ears prick up and you believe in him, you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. How sure do you think our salvation is? If the God of glory has sealed us with his own spirit, who he promised to be with us to the end of the age. Even more so, verse 14, this spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. How long? Until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is how sure our salvation is. This is how sure Timothy needs to be. Don't be ashamed, Timothy, because the Father has given you to the Son, and the Son has entrusted you to the Spirit, and the, and the Spirit will hold you until you see the Son face to face in glory. How discouraged should we be for false teachers? How deterred should we be when things don't go the way we think they should? Our God is sovereign. Our salvation is secure. Christ knows his sheep. He will never let him go, and his spirit keeps us. And in the same spirit who keeps us applies the word. The same spirit who keeps his people convicts his people and reminds his people of Jesus Christ. So that, that internal seal of the Holy Spirit is accompanied with an external response of purity. So, the Lord knows who are his and let everyone, back in 2 Timothy, who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The wheat, the sheep, those bearing the name of Christ, those the one a king has put his seal on, they will respond because this internal security, as much as we want to fight it, as much as, as our flesh wars against it, it will res respond in external purity. These are two sides of the same coin. This is a, a, a true coin. When you have a, a valid gold coin, it'll have one side and then the other. Each has a different message. On one side will be its ruler. That is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the other side will be either the... Uh, identity or values of their, their nation. We, too, are a two-sided coin. On one side, we bear the name of our ruler. The king has set his seal on us. The other side of the same coin is that we will live as a holy, set-apart people. That's why verses 20 and 21 are there. 
to illustrate this, and this is where we'll close. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay. Kind of sounds like the wheat in the tares parable, right? Some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Notice the two sides of the coin here. These things are not in opposition. The master put the gold object in the house, the one that is truly approved. And the other side of that, that coin is the one who is truly gold. He will do good works. He will live out of that identity in the kingdom. So we're not going to exegete this this time. Next time we'll get into this more. We're just going to apply it. This illustration is a perfect explanation and application for our text. There's, there's, a, there's a great house. There have been many churches throughout the world, throughout the ages. And just like the church in Ephesus, they are filled with gold and silver vessels that are approved by God and they're valuable. But the enemy, Satan, sows vessels of wood and clay. That they, they serve a purpose for a moment. But what happens when the harvest comes? What happens when the reapers come? What happens when you put fire to gold or silver? Does it change? It remains gold. It remains silver. But when you put fire to wood or clay, it goes back to the earth. It burns up and becomes part of the dirt again. When the refining fire is set to the house, what will, what will remain? Just like the weeds, the wood and the clay will be destroyed. This is the call. The call is don't perish with the wood and the clay. I'm not going to get into, we don't need to know who the elect are. We need to know the message. What is not of God will be destroyed. What is not gold or silver, what is not true, will go into the fire. So therefore, verse 22, 21, cleanse yourself. If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, these vessels, the ones that are true, they will prove themselves to be approved because they will cleanse themselves. They will be washed in the life-giving blood of the Lamb. And what does that mean? You have no business carousing with the dishonorable vessels. You have no business getting into their debates and living like them and looking like them. You have no business being unequally yoked. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable youth, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Christ, the master, has cleansed us with his blood. He has set us apart as holy and useful to him. This is what our faith is in, and our faith will produce good works. Those who bear the name of the Lord will depart from iniquity. We will produce good works. Because as we read earlier in Isaiah, it is the Lord who does those works. Because we are approved by the Lord and his purpose will stand. Brothers and sisters, what is done in the name of the Lord will stand forever. What is sown in righteousness, what is done by gold and silver to the glory of God will stand in the name of the Lord. But the workers of iniquity, the dishonorable vessels... They will be destroyed. The Lord has let them grow up for a time. But a harvest is coming. A resurrection is coming. When all the living and the dead will be resurrected. There will be eternal glory and eternal destruction. So brothers and sisters, let us work as ones approved. For God's glory. In God's kingdom. Because we know in the Lord our labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you prick our hearts this morning. That what we just read and heard would be pleasing to you. That we would be convicted where we are 
drawn astray by false teachings where we have been the irreverent babblers. May we also be encouraged. May your saints take refuge in the firm foundation of their Savior. May we rejoice that we, were, we found our approval at the cross. There is nothing we can add to that and nothing we can take away. And that because of the work of our Savior, because of the seal of the Holy Spirit, we can do good works that are pleasing to you and we want to be pleasing to you because we are pleasing to you in Christ. Let your people be encouraged. Let your people be emboldened. And let your enemies fear. Let them fear the wrath to come. And may your saints take courage because with the wrath for the weeds comes glory for the wheat. And we look forward to that day and we say, come Lord Jesus, come. It's in his name we pray, amen.